Stand-up comic joke it up one time. Funny. You like the song that we wrote for this? Funny. This is the podcast, Let's Talk About Sets, with Harrison Tweed and Jeff McBride. I'm Jeff, your somewhat spectrum control freak host, producer, editor, and showrunner, and this is the boy wonder, Harrison Tweed. I am him. We are in for a treat today with our guest, the brilliantly prolific and funny Dan Lamort. Say hi. Oh, <laughs> I'm here with these two young whippersnappers to investigate the role of a real pick-me-up in stand-up comedy, mental health. I honestly cannot wait. So let's get started with a clip that Dan selected by Mark Marin called Dad Slash Depression. And that's from his 2006 album, Tickets Still Available. I woke up this morning terrified, but that was really my fault. I set the alarm. <laughs> you ever think about how you start every day of your working life? Nah, 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 nah. Fuck, what's happening? Is there a fire? Jesus Christ. I think I pissed myself. What's going on? Oh, it's just the clock. Yay, day. You scare the shit out of yourself every morning just to wake up. How is that good for you? You could be dreaming. Maybe you're like, hey, look, I'm flying. Hey, there's my mommy. What's Hitler doing here? Nah, 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 nah. Of course, if you saw your mom and Hitler, you'd want to wake up because that's scary, too. I'd probably call my mommy and say, Mommy, what were you doing with Hitler in my head while I was sleeping? My mom would say, I don't know. Ask your father. (laughs) All right, put Hitler on. (laughs) (laughs) All right, my dad's not Hitler. Can someone please tell me what the fuck is wrong with my father? Anybody? (laughs) Nobody? What, you all have good relationships with your dads? At some point, you got to sit down with your dad over coffee or lunch and just look him right in the eye and say, okay, is there any way I can avoid becoming you? Is there any way? Because it's happening and I want out. Can you help me to keep a diary? Any advice? Fucking help me for once. Help me, you fuck. And if you ever had that conversation with your dad, that is the moment where they'll look you right in the eye and go, ha, ha, ha. Because one thing you have to realize about the father-son relationship, on some level, though it's subliminal, it is a battle to the death. And on some level, when you're fucked up just like them, they are as proud of you as if you won a fucking medal of some kind. Even more so, because that doesn't threaten them. If your dad can say, what, did you fuck your first marriage up and you're pathologically narcissistic? Yeah. (laughs) You're just like your old man. Welcome to the club. Fuck you. Payback's a bitch. My dad's manic depressive, which is very exciting half the time. The other half, not so exciting. I don't know if you know the thrill of having a manic in your life, the delusional phone call at three in the morning with the big plans. Hey, Mark, it's dad. Are you up? It's three. I don't care. Get up. I got an idea. You're going to love this. We're going to open a fucking theme park. What do you think? 
A theme park? Yeah, like fucking Disney, but bigger than Disney. It's gonna be gonna be Marin World. You know, Disneyland. You remember? I took you there when you were a kid. I was crying on the teacups. Remember? Anyways, ours is gonna be bigger and better, and I just called to see if you'd work there when I opened the theme park. Oh, fuck. All right, Dad. Can I run the bipolar coaster? <laughs> I'll tell you what. Call me when you're crying. I love you. All right? Don't kill yourself. Bye-bye. <laughs> My dad wakes up early to hate the world. He sets his clock to get up to hate. It's amazing. He's up just... He gets up. He sets his alarm to wake up and sit at his kitchen table and go, Fuck! <laughs> fuck! I stayed at his house once and I woke up to get water. He was already sitting there with coffee, his vitamins, and a gun going, what the fuck am I going to do today? (laughs) What's it going to be? What's it going to be? Vitamin E or a bullet in my mouth? What do we got? Eventually I sit down and I'm like, let me have some coffee. I'll catch up with you. Yeah, what's it going to be, Dad? What are we going to fucking do? Then all of a sudden it's like deer hunter. Put one in. Put one in. You go, Dad. Fuck you. You go. Then we go two rounds. We cry and we go out and have some breakfast. It's wonderful. Me and my dad doing things together. Because we never play catch. But there's some things we can do together and still enjoy. My dad's amazing. He gets these fleets of manic excitement. He has these big ideas. This is a true story. He calls me up one day. He goes, guess what I'm doing? And I'm like, what? He goes, I'm getting a job at Walmart. But he was excited. He's like, I'm going to work at Walmart. I'm going to sell shoes and sporting goods. My father's an ex-surgeon, a retired doctor. I go, Dad, you're a doctor. He goes, I know, but Walmart's going to be great. I'm like, it's not that great a place. He's like, it's going to be great. I'm going to help people. I'm going to get them shoes, and I'm going to get them tennis rackets and whatever they need. I'm like, all right, Dad, whatever you need to do. Calls me up two weeks later. I quit Walmart. Fuck them. But here's the genius. I go, why'd you quit working at Walmart? He goes, because they don't know how to run a fucking business. <laughs> yeah, I read that. The Walmart was having some financial troubles. <laughs> I guess if only they had a bipolar ex-surgeon at the helm to drive it into the ground like he did our fucking family, they'd be doing all right, wouldn't they? <laughs> Walmart's evil. You know what I mean? Forcing fucking small family businesses like Kmart and Sears to merge. <laughs> Sometimes I don't believe that he really has depression I don't always believe in depression I do know what fuck means You know what I mean? Depression is a whole other thing You know what I mean? Because a lot of people You know, you shouldn't be on medication if you don't need it That's what I say You shouldn't Because I think a lot of times Depression is actually a scam to sell medication The reason I know this is They're making up diseases I swear to God, they're making them up. I saw a poster for Zoloft. Zoloft used to be an antidepressant. I saw a poster that said, Zoloft also treats social anxiety disorder. You you mean shyness? (laughs) And if you read the symptoms of a psychological ailment, you're going to have at least four. There's 50 of them. You're going to have a few. Do you ever go down any of those lists? Are you uncomfortable with sushi? Fuck, I am a little bit. Do you sing in your car? Holy shit, I fucking do, man. I'm fucking sick. I must be sick. I need help here. I need pills. All right. Oh, Dan, that's a great bit. Why'd you pick it? Uh, Because they're breaking down the actual comedy of it. There's a lot in it 
where he makes the audience comfortable with a dark topic, uh-huh. yeah. which is very important with mental illness. Right. In particular, like he, he tackles depression, he tackles manic depression, he goes yeah. right into the actual mm-hmm. behaviors. Yeah, and the, the smart thing that he does is right up front, he talks about how he's terrified when his alarm goes off, mm-hmm. which hints to the crowd that he is also depressed. Uh-huh. Because right off the bat, he's upset with the day. Right. So he brings them in with that without telling them that he's also depressed. And then he wraps it up with talking about how depression, some people just think they have it because they have some symptoms. Uh-huh. So he uh-huh. makes it relatable off the bat. Right. He doesn't immediately like peg himself and say, I'm this way. And then to, then people go, yeah, but I'm not. Yeah. He right. opens with the little anxiety, like the, when the alarm goes off, fuck. Like, right. Yeah. Right. Uh, one of my favorite things he does in this is he clearly indicates that how much he finds his dad's behavior distasteful and then identifies with it over yeah. and over and, and over keeps again. saying that, I mean, he starts it off by saying he's scared that he's growing into what his dad is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And also what I liked is that the, how it's a very serious and dark bit, but he uses words that aren't serious. Like instead of calling his mom, mom, he calls her mommy mm-hmm. and then goes right from mommy to going Hitler. So he goes from <laughs> such a, such a soft and lovable word to Hitler. Yeah. I mean, he's really hitting them with everything he can trying to make them comfortable with this. Because right. if you go Hitler and then mommy, mm-hmm. it doesn't work the same. He no, I mean, that's, a, that's an ironclad rule of history. Yeah. You can't go Hitler, then mommy. <laughs> no. It's always mommy, yeah, it's then Hitler. It's love to hate. Yeah. yeah, for sure. <laughs> and then he raps in Hitler with his father, and then that's how he addresses his father. And I loved that. That was Ask the transition. Dad. Oh, yeah, it's so dad. funny. That, yeah. that, that uh, switch is so great. You don't... It, I, I listened to it, and I remember there was a moment where I went... Oh, that's such a trite. Oh God, there it is. Yeah. And then he hits me. That was it. Was such a great. And just surprise also from turn. a comedy standpoint, that saves him words. That's cutting out the fat. Yeah. Calling Hitler his father. Now he doesn't need to say. And then also, my father has this. Yeah. He just goes right into the dad stuff because yeah, he yeah. put it right in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's I, very smartly done. I like how I like his initial lead into it, and I like his like secondary lead into everything. Which he, he starts with kind of like a cute Seinfeldian observation, which is like. Isn't it crazy that we start our days with these alarm clocks that mm-hmm. sound like yeah. fucking insane? I've never noticed. Yeah, yeah. It's like <laughs> very silly. And then, uh, but then he has that, <laughs> the other lead into this stuff about his dad. There's like, do you know what's wrong with my father? Yeah, do he you? the crowd. He forces them to come along with them. He yeah. like, he, he puts it on them to right. figure it, it out. It almost turns it into a group therapy session by yeah. saying, do you know what's wrong? And no one says anything. So he goes, all right, now I'm going to explain it to you. Which mm-hmm. is so much better than like, yeah. my dad is fucked. Up. Exactly. It comes back into the overall theme of this bit, which he's inviting the crowd into it. He's not putting it on them. Yeah. Because mm. with mental health, it is a very dark topic, and he's making sure they know that he's inviting them in. This isn't mandatory. I like the way you said that. It's an invitation. Yeah. Into He's giving them every chance to jump out of the bit. He does it throughout the whole entire journey. How, how do you mean? Not, not even an invitation to leave. Like, he keeps giving them reasons to stay. Like when he goes into talking about his dad, as he's a manic uh, depressive, so he goes, it's exciting half the time. Yeah. So he does throw out like a little cutesy type of joke before Uh he jumps into the meat and the potatoes of it. Mm -hmm. You need that cute shit. 
That's what silliness, fun-lovingness. We've talked about this a lot. It disarms them. Silliness, if if you're going to talk about something super serious, you better do it in a silly way or it's tougher. It's a lot tougher. Yeah. Uh, The silliness, um, it's the the dog and the pill analogy. Mm -hmm. It's the peanut butter around the pill. Exactly. It's a very disarming joke. As you know, comics have barometer jokes where they could read the crowd. Uh This lets them know that their silliness is still at the core of this joke. Mm -hmm. Yes. So stay on board. uh, One of my favorite moments of silliness that involves fantastic wordplay in here is where he's, he says, I got big plans. It's 3, a, 3 a.m., Dad. God, he's like, we're going to do a theme park. It's Disney, but bigger. It's Disney. And he's like, okay, can I, can I run the bipolar coaster? Again, another cutesy joke. Right. And I like when he says when his dad uh, wakes up and he goes, fuck, and he goes, there's the gun at the table. Yeah. Because he's implying suicide before he even mentions suicide. Yeah. So he doesn't need to say that his dad's going to kill himself. And then you get to connect the dots, yeah. which hits people less. It doesn't. It's not a gut punch. No. People get to realize what he just said, as opposed to him saying, "My dad's suicidal." Ugh. Yeah. yeah. I woke up. There was co- there were one, two innocuous things. Then here's the third dangerous thing. Very much so. And then he even brings it home with saying, "We cry and get breakfast together." <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Then all of a sudden they're 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 similar again. Yeah, again that then then that's more uh, rec- like uh, coming with one to the crowd because everyone cries, everyone gets breakfast. <laughs> like what, breakfast with your parents is such a meal you like to get with older people. <laughs> like if my parents want to go out with me, they're like, hey, you want to grab some breakfast at the diner? Mm-hmm. It's just a very nonchalant. Not there's no darkness to it. Yeah. It's family time. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. not we cry and go out to a serious Italian restaurant and dress up. It's we get breakfast. Yeah. Right, right. Or right. like the dark thing of like, he he go, did, like yeah. we go to a strip club because my dad likes yeah. the strip club. Yeah. He goes from suicide to like eggs and chocolate milk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I love how, yeah, right, he reframed, this is classic, wonderful technique. He, he takes a very safe, very familial environment and he reframes it as... <laughs> Deer hunter. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah, he doesn't say Rush Roulette. No. Yeah. Yeah. There's so many ways to approach mental illness, and Marin really went with the cutesy way in this, which I think as the years went on, he shied away from Mm -hmm. and started going into like the real heavy shit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But this was his introduction. I don't think he was ever light. (laughs) No, but this, I think this was before he was even just sitting on stools and having like group therapy sessions with this crowd. I think. Before wasn't he more of like a fuck the established yeah yeah like yeah that kind yeah, of yeah, oh, yeah. yeah 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 like a he has a, there's a quote. there is some of that in here about Walmart yeah yeah they're ruining mom and pop businesses <laughs> yeah. like do Kmart they, have a, do they so Marin a, gets his little key fuck the government in yeah there. yeah I love that like tagging like something very quickly with like a viewpoint you have and you can just it culminates but yes. it's yeah. it's yes. it's they don't even notice it if they don't need to notice it <laughs> I like the part where well one he goes. He compares the Walmart to his family. So it's, again, breaking down, making them realize that it's all okay because you could compare anything to anything. But then he goes into the fact about how medication, a lot of people don't need it because if you see the symptoms, and he says, I think it was, do you eat sushi? Do you sing in your car? Obviously not real symptoms, Mm -hmm. but it's a way to bring the crowd in to be like, oh, hey, we're all in this shit together. Right. (sighs) We all share similar symptoms. And that's kind of how he ties it up. By saying, hey, this is all us. We're all in this together. This is our boat. We're steering it ourselves. And I thought that was kind of cool because he could have left it on a dark part, but he brings it back to the whole group thing and gives them the choice if this is a bit they want to take with them or if it's a bit they want to leave. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? What do you mean when you say he gives them the choice? 
again, it comes back to what I said before. He's never telling them they have to laugh at it. Mm-hmm. He's giving them every chance to laugh at it and giving them silly little anecdotes to join in. But he never throws it down their throat like, hey, you have the symptoms. It's do you have the symptoms? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's his wording that's a very inviting bit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it, you, you think it's instead of the, the – there's a way to do comedy where you go, this is how it is. Yeah. And then there's the other this way. This is me, take this, it or leave it. This isn't a bit like that. Right. Yeah. This is me. This is my father. Join in or don't. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to keep it silly. So mm-hmm. even if someone didn't like that bit, there's nothing to get mad at in it. Right. Because you have the bipolar roller coaster. The Half the time it's fun. Mm-hmm. It's always silly little jokes. One of the things he does is he keeps it to his experience. Yeah, And he exactly. doesn't tell people what their experience is. No, it's all personal. Right. Minus right. the Walmart thing. He right. Yeah. <laughs> But it's always fun to throw Walmart under the water, yeah. under the yeah. bus. <laughs> Walmart as a whole, I think if you had to pick a store that exemplifies depression, yes. it's Walmart. Oh, my fuck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Walmart has depression lighting. Yeah, yeah. When you walk in, there's no metal detector for guns. It's like, hey, if you're not mentally ill, this machine will tell us and you can't shop here. Yeah. This is for sad people who want $4 t-shirts. <laughs> With that being said, my outfit is sponsored by Walmart, so... Oh, it's, yeah. it's an audio podcast. Yeah. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> I hope you're not sponsored by Walmart. Uh, no. Well, thanks a lot. It's gonna be a little harder now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, JC Penny. <laughs> <laughs> There's an article on mental health and stand-up comedy from Split Cider. I really, really dug it. And there's a quote from Mark Marin. He said, "I know very few comedians who haven't wrestled with this stuff, and it's often the wrestling that's the funniest." Yeah, that's so yes. true. Yeah. yeah. I, I really dug that quote because it isn't that they're mentally ill. It's how are they dealing with it and how are they compressing that depression and anxiety into a diamond joke? Yeah, I think the wrestling as a whole is, not like you said, not only wrestling with it, but also wrestling with getting it to stage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's, that's pretty deep. Stand-up comedy is the only time I've ever sat there through, I'll give you an example, uh, Pat Oswalt's new special, we were talking about it off yeah. mic. I sat there halfway through it going, when are you going to talk about your wife's death? And, I, and I, then I had this realization, in no other time in my life am I sitting there, please talk about the most <laughs> devastating moment of your life. Yeah. I can't wait to do this emotional lifting with you. Yeah. And, and the reason I think that that... It's the only context where we're just like, please talk about it. Yeah. Because the job of the comedian, or one of the jobs of the comedian, is to make things okay. And we want to yeah. see how are you going to do it. Yeah. yeah. And so it, it's a beautiful thing that this, this one, this space is there to help us live with who we are and what we are. Yeah. And Patton's is even more interesting because Patton has always been somewhat of a political comic on mm-hmm. top of being an alternative comic. Mm-hmm. So going into that special, there were two huge elephant in the rooms, which were Trump mm-hmm. and his wife's death. And he had to make the decision which to tackle first. Right. And that's, again, that's the whole wrestling process. Yeah. How did he decide which was more important? Mm-hmm. Well, I guess, I guess that's pretty dumb. Yeah, <laughs> I was going to say. His wife dying is more important. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he has to look at his daughter and go, your mom died and Trump's president. Right, yeah. right. And he's like, and then her, his daughter didn't say, what was that about Trump? <laughs> <laughs> this is the only uh, field where talking about mental health can brighten up a room. 
<laughs> if you're at the deli getting a sandwich and the guy's like, man, I wanted to kill myself yesterday. You're like, just put the mustard on and bag it up, dude. <laughs> I don't have time for your bit right now. <laughs> but in comedy, it's like, yes, get into this. Yeah, it's really Any fun. other job, it's like, I don't want to hear this. Do you have to be okay with these things in order to make it okay? Me and a girl ended our relationship. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had expressed suicidal thoughts after to my family. And I had a set of Carolines that night because I needed a new tape. This was when I was like a year in. So my parents were like, all right, we'll drive you in because we don't want you driving because you might jump off a bridge. So they drove me into Carolines, went and did seven minutes, murdered, left. That was the best set of my life to this day. And that tape for the next year and a half until I got a new one really got so much shit for me. And it's weird because... To me, the whole mental thing is like so many people saw this tape of me killing at Caroline's. Yeah. And nobody knew that I was literally suicidal thinking of jumping off a bridge. Why wouldn't you want to talk about that? That's such a fucking great story. It's there's nothing embarrassing or awful about that. That is what stand up can be. Yeah. All right. It's <laughs> fucking beautiful. Yeah. I love. Thank you for sharing that. You got it. My dad died on six of leukemia. I am so on board with cancer jokes, like, yeah. and I like love them. Um, and I've put myself. Why on- do you love them? Because I feel like there is so much. I was just talking to someone. We were doing bits or anything. He was like, "What was it like when your father?" Because my father was sick for a very long time, yeah. so my mom would be at the hospital, and she and I was, and they were like, "What? What did you think when they, you were going through that?" And I was like. I was just like, oh man, I'm. I, this is the most slumber parties I've ever had. <laughs> <laughs> like, like to a oh, kid, man. it was just like, wow, another week with Sammy. Yeah. That sounds Stay great. Sick. It's just <laughs> weird. Um, but I've I've also wrestled with this because I have friends in comedy whose parents have died. We have a really really close friend of ours who's. Um, I'm not going to mention their name just because I don't want to. But their mother passed away about six years ago. And it's and she was the reason he did stand up. She like w- like put on stand up while he was eating breakfast, kind oh, of thing wow. as a kid. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know what I would think of them if 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 he had died at an age where I really got to know him and I really understood the process that, of like. Well, well I want to go back to the original question, yeah. which is why do cancer jokes? Why do you love them so much? Uh, they just make me feel more like they make me feel less alone about it. Wow. Yeah. Like j- the re- uh, we talked a little bit off mic about this fantastic comic. Uh, he's often at the cellar. He's done a Comedy Central thing. Uh, Drew Michael. But he has this yeah. bit about suicide. And basically the punchline is about or the premise of the joke is this woman complaining because she he made this joke about suicide and um, her nephew had died like of uh, killed himself a while back. And he says, he's like, and it sucks because like the reason I write these jokes is so, and I'm paraphrasing here, is so that the people that deal with the issues I'm dealing with that I'm joking about don't feel alone. Yeah. And then, so it's like the woman comes up to him and he's like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Your nephew died. But you know who would have really loved these jokes is your nephew. Like he would have, he's like my target, <laughs> he's my target audience. So this is very tragic. That and, is true though, because in the sense that I don't joke about cancer mm-hmm. because it hasn't affected me. Yeah, yeah. Right. And so if I do it, it doesn't come off as real, but I have stood at the edge of a building thinking of jumping. So I do joke about suicide exactly because to me, it's how I make it normal. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. And Steve Martin it has so for you, it. for you, it's, it's normalization for you. It's yeah. connection. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure yeah, they're, they're connected, but yeah, yeah, like yeah, yeah. Yeah, there is connection to me because I have learned that 
through talking through more serious things, that's how you connect with the crowd. Mm -hmm. Because Mm -hmm. chances are there's going to be people in the crowd who are mentally ill and don't talk about it. And those are the ones who will sneak up to you after a show and be like, hey, that helped me out. Mm -hmm. That got me. That made me realize I'm not alone in this. And that's kind of why I do it. If I did the cancer stuff, it wouldn't come out as real. I very much like doing things that are real and that could hit people hard. Mm -hmm. It's also funny. I was a... It's funny because these kind of things that really make us who we are and make us comedians, these like uh, voids that we need filling or these these sadnesses we need to like be swept away. Yeah. Um, it's really funny how they become identifiers of why you're funny, like to your friends. I, I remember I was with, uh, do, do you know Drew Morgan? He's been a guest on the podcast. He's very funny. As in liberal redneck group? Yes. He's yeah. one of my best friends. Yeah. He's really, he's really a close friend of mine. And he was with Corey Ryan Forrester, who was also part of that. Yeah. And this was when we were just shit. Like we had just had this shitty bar show together. Yeah. And um, I remember th- Drew told me there was a conversation him and Corey were having because Corey couldn't wrap his head around why I'm funny. He was just like, <laughs> I don't get it. Like, why is Harrison fun? Like, there's nothing. It doesn't make sense. He looks like his life would be perfect. <laughs> and and then um, Drew was like. Well, you know what? Uh, his dad died when he was six, and Corey was like, and he, he was like, Corey was like, oh, oh, that <laughs> makes so much. Oh, yeah. oh, that okay makes total sense. Oh, now. I, I just there. I felt like I didn't understand funny anymore because Harrison was funny and he didn't have a reason. <laughs> it was so funny. It was like I was like, oh, that's so funny. It becomes that like was an like identifier. Your little ID that you're good to do this. Yeah, yeah. That <laughs> that's like, your badge of approval. Exactly. I, yeah. Nah, someone died that I knew. It, I could do it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. he's like, Let me do type five. My father is. I'm gonna take him aside and be like, this is not for you. (laughs) (laughs) Please uh, let me get on stage. We cremated him. It is a coping mechanism, I think. I dated this girl for a while. She was a a psychologist. One of the things she said to me, and I hated it at the time, she said, she was like, oh, yeah, depressed people are all really funny. And I was like, like, what do you mean? She's like, oh, that's just how it works. Mm -hmm. And I was like, fuck you. What the fuck do you know? And then uh, and years, and then later I'm just like, I I bristled at that because I'm like, so I I have been so depressed in my life and and wrestled with it forever and been in counseling so much. And I mean, I'm on Wellbutrin right now. Uh, And so like Wellbutrin, it's the best. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's my drug of choice. (laughs) Uh, So like, I, 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 it hit me and I was, I denied it immediately. I was like, you don't have to be depressed to be funny. What I meant to say is, I can be funny even though uh, that's not why. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny though because there's such a fine line between depressed funny person mm-hmm. and then next week psychotic break done yeah. forever. Yeah. It's like it's such a thin line. Is is this going to go over well or is this going to be the set that breaks me forever? <laughs> I, I found, and I think everybody's different with this. I've 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 seen some comedians who the more depressed they are, the funnier they are. One hundred percent. Yeah. For me, I can't create from sadness. I can only create particularly well from joy. And so it's when I have crossed over and had another breakthrough past the depression, then I can get into the, I have to have that distance so I can make it okay. Cause the audience can feel that I'm not okay with the thing I'm talking about. Yeah. And then I'm, this is a quote from Patrick Holbert, who was on the show a while ago. Um, he said, when people, when, when comedians go on stage and they're not okay with it yet, they're making the audience do the emotional lifting. 
instead of them doing the emotional lifting. It's deep. And so you're breaking the agreement you have with the audience. You're like, they, they come there to be led into this joyful space and you come there and you're like, please make me feel happy about this. Please make me feel okay about this. Yeah. And so they're like, that's why then they go, oh, and then it ruins, it can ruin that moment if they don't have something it really can, funny yeah. to follow it up. That's like the, I don't have insurance, please fix me joke. <laughs> I can't go to therapy. You are my insurance carriers yeah. now. Send me to one of the other audience members and fix me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know a good audience who can help? <laughs> but it's funny though, because I, there is truth to that, but I think... Maybe when you do the joke, even if you're not ready to do it, but you get it out there in front of a crowd, that crowd is now the test subject. So if they laugh, you keep doing that. And eventually you heal yourself through it. So maybe initially mm -hmm. it is help me. Mm -hmm. But by the time that joke is crafted, it's let me help you. I like the overarching process, the way that you're looking yeah. at this. It's, it's growth through sharing. Mm -hmm. You're growing each time you tell the joke because the more times you tell it, the more you're telling yourself internally that it's okay. Right. I've now not only joked about this once, I've joked about it 70 times, mm -hmm. and now it's fine with me. I mm -hmm. can move past it. Now it's just a thing. Yeah. Now I'm not, I'm, not 100, I'm not totally attached to it and precious about it. Exactly. And that comes back to the whole bringing the crowd in with you. Mm -hmm. Because once they start to feel that you're okay with it, that's when they'll laugh at you. Mm -hmm. If they're looking at someone who's like, this guy might kill himself tonight, they're worried and there's, it's right. not good to have a worried crowd because they won't laugh because inherently people get concerned. Well, and, and ultimately, uh, laughter is an indication that, uh, everything is okay right now. It's a safety yeah. marker, not just in humans, but in, 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 in apes and rats, like, uh, laughter, there's a lot of science behind this and laughter is this marker that we are at play and there is no yeah. danger. And the moment it feels serious, the moment it feels danger, then people find it very difficult to laugh. Yeah, because then you, a, a depressed comic who's not ready to talk about it can ruin the show for everyone else, especially yeah. if it's a showcase show. Right. Because yeah. then the comic who comes up next is like, well, I was going to talk about dogs and my family, and now <laughs> you're all sad. And yeah, yeah. I don't know what to do to get out of this. And we just watched him cry and leave the stage, so yeah. uh, let's yeah. have fun, guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. <laughs> There, I, I went, uh, I did a, a sad, like very recent, like not re recent at the time, like post breakup set. And yeah. I had to say, I'm going to do some breakup material, but can we just pretend that this is like months from now and I'm over it? And <laughs> yeah, like, this yeah. Isn't, it, was, it was like, a Jedi mind trick. Yeah. yeah. It was like, this isn't like, um, I'm, was it the day you broke up? It was like five days after yeah. I did a, my last breakup. I did a set the day we broke up. Yeah. And I think it was, I don't know if that was what saved me, mm -hmm. but I think the comics who saw me do it talked me off the ledge that night. What about the romanticization of this, of mental illness as the muse for being funny? I think the romanticization. I can't say that word. I'm not smart enough. The romanticization. <laughs> Can you tell I dropped out of online college? Uh, it, you just closed the laptop. Two, yeah. But you got like a million on your SATs. So. I know, yeah. yeah. Oh, 1710. Uh, but like there's two separate parts of that. You have the people outside of comedy romanticizing it. And then you have the comics romanticizing it. Mm. And I think for the outside people, it's very one-sided where they just assume comics have mental illness and that's why they're funny. Mm -hmm. And inside comedy, 
there's the whole thing. Is this what's going to make me funny or is this what's not going to make me funny? Mm-hmm. So to us, it's a lot different than the outsiders because this is a conflict for us. So the outsiders, that's just a way for them to identify mm-hmm. why a lot of comedians do end up not making it the full lifespan. Right. Yeah. So fin- I don't think I answered early. your question at all. No, but it's, but, a, it's a springboard, right? So yeah. like you have two – there are two pieces to this. There's uh, culture yeah. romanticizing – the mental illnesses that uh, comedians talk about, which of course they do because it's the only venue in which mental illness gets discussed. Exactly. Yeah. Right. That's not a forum where everybody's really sad and they had somebody die in their family and they're trying to deal with it or something. Yeah. It's, it's the only, like we said, it's the only profession where this is accepted. Well, it's certainly the only like real entertainment profession aside from maybe Dr. Phil or something. Yeah. And I'm sure you got documentaries on it, but that shit's, that's, yeah. that's written out and planned. A lot of times right. we don't plan that we're going to talk about suicide. It just, <laughs> happened to us and yeah. now we're gonna talk about it it right. was never a planned right. thing right and it's, no one wakes up and it's not a wanna... specialty yeah like, it's not yeah, yeah. this isn't like on like a Yu-Gi-Oh card if they had their their assets depression is not one of our assets <laughs> it's just what shapes us ah, so that's the springboard into the next piece which the next part of this which is a lot of comedians seem to think that it is their asset and they're and they're afraid that if they lose if they do the work on themselves to uh to address the demons in a real way, th- th- there is a fear that, oh, will that take my funny? Yeah, that is a f- that was a fear of mine. Well, I mean, I took medication when I was 17, mm-hmm. so I was on it before I was a stand-up. But then when I changed medications, I wondered if this was what was going to stop me from being funny. And then I realized pretty quickly that it's not. That's, uh, that's, I think that comes with another thing of anxiety, is the anxiety is that you might not be funny anymore. So in that case, Dan, let's talk a little bit about Dan. Okay. Because it sounds like we're on the topic of Dan the Mort. Yeah. All right. Let's do it. Do we have a fun, cute song for this one, too? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's uh, Elliot Smith. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. Let's talk about sex. Dan Lamort is a New York City-based stand-up comedian. He is one of the youngest comics in the scene at only 22 years old. Uh, he's a regular at our comedy mecca here in New York, and really around the world, uh, the comedy seller. Yes. Louie, Louie. No. <laughs> no. That's how think, people know really? it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Dan's been seen doing panels. He's been on. There's, there's, there's so much. It's yeah. all in the. It'll be in the show notes. I panel your uh, house. Yeah. For a <laughs> uh, Dan also has an album out, Not Enough Pieces, and he tours nationally. So, yeah. Dan, thanks for coming on the show, man. Thank you for having me. And by the way, oh. Not Enough Pieces is an ode to mental illness. Mm. Ah. Uh, it was when I spent time in a mental institution, they would make us do puzzles, and none of the puzzles had enough pieces. <laughs> And if, if anyone actually looks at the cover art of the album, it is a cartoon picture of me putting together a puzzle of myself, and the brain is missing the pieces. Mm-hmm. Oh, Very dark shit. album cover that no one picked up on because no one listened to it. 
for me, it's a nice little reminder of where I came from. Yeah. And unfortunately, I learned later on that Maria Banford had a similar uh, sketch of that in one of her shows. Because mm-hmm. she's also another comic who dealt with mental illness. And I think she was on a panel on a show or either in her TV show on Netflix. There was, she addressed puzzles and mental institutions not having enough pieces. Yeah. So kind of fucked me over. Uh, whatever you hack. Yeah. <laughs> How dare you talk about your own personal experience and not check to see if anybody else yeah. had it. As far as comics who have been in mental institutions, it's as common as depression is in comedy. You don't hear a lot of comics talking about stories from psych wards. Right. Right. A lot of people don't know how to cope with that part of their life. Embarrassing. Tough. Yeah. To me, that was the best. A-level stuff. That was the best time my life was in a psych ward. Tell me about it. Why? Well, one, I think the main reason was I was 17 when I went in. So I was in the adolescent ward. Mm-hmm. I didn't have to deal with the psychopaths right above me. Mm-hmm. And uh, Floor three, no go. Yep, no. <laughs> Two was good. Three mm-hmm. is when people were bashing their head against the window. Oh, I, was, I, was the, I was the floor. And that, was, that, that actually happened. I was outside playing basketball in the mental institution court. And I looked up, and there was just a guy looking at us bashing his head on the window till blood was running down. Oh, my God. Yeah, it was God. literally like everything they do in a movie that makes it seem like a mental institution is what it is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it was, I think for Fuck. me at the time, because I was 17. Was Sarah Connor there? <laughs> <laughs> you don't know what you're, you don't know what's happening. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, no, it was very. 17. You're 17. Yeah. yeah we're oh, 17. Yeah. Because uh, it, it was cool because, you know, I had just been arrested for uh, attempting to sell drugs. I was not good at it. And, uh, <laughs> so wait, was that the charge? Uh, very bad at selling drugs. Yeah, that was yeah, that was that was one of the charges. Was mediocre drug dealer. <laughs> if you're gonna do this, at least do it well. No, but I think what ha- at the time I tried telling myself the reason I went into the mental institution was I faked a mental breakdown to get out of trouble with my parents for getting arrested. But I think subconsciously I oh, knew wow. I needed help. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And that we- I spent a week in a place called Monmouth Medical Center, which was a facility not only for uh, not only mental health, but it was also like somewhat of a rehab kind of. Mm-hmm. And to spend a week at 17 without your phone, without anything, you just have the people that are there, you're on a strict schedule. It was the best time of my life because I didn't have to worry about anything else but was what, in front of, what, was, what was in front of me. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't happen in life that often anymore. There's always problems coming at you from every direction. I didn't have that here. It right. was all one thing. Just get through this day. Don't do anything stupid. Uh-huh. And that's it. Right. And it, and it was one of your favorite times in life because just you you were able to 100% focus and you had no other concerns? Or what, what, yeah, what it is... was just – it was a freeing week. You know, there's mm-hmm. – I, I – I tried reading more into it, but it was more so just a break from technology, mm-hmm. a break from high school, a break. I was dealing with shit with a girlfriend at the time who was telling people she was pregnant. So it was like a whole thing. I just got to escape from the oh, world, wow. my phone, the child that eventually got aborted. Uh, <laughs> I'm kidding. That's a joke. Oh, you guys hard to t- tell. <laughs> we were, we're in real land here. So yeah, like, yeah, <laughs> I, I shouldn't have thrown an abortion. <laughs> pit. <laughs> she showed up at, at my house with the fetus in hand. It was. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I was at the, you could get mail. This is at, yours. Yeah. You could get mail at the mental institution. And she mailed me a hanger. Uh, <laughs> 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 oh, this got dark quick. Uh, but yeah, it was just, I, I tried reading into it, but there was nothing there. It was just, it was a week away from bullshit and it was mm-hmm. nice. Yeah. It was I, good. I had a, I had a, a breakdown, um, when I was, I think I was 21, I was, adult. yeah, yeah. I didn't have an excuse. Uh, I, <laughs> I'd gone to, I was living in the United Kingdom. I was on a, a study abroad. Yeah. My sister had died recently. She, she died in a plane crash and, 
Um, I had always had issues with like depression and shit, uh, which is, that's how I call it. What's what I call it. Depression and shit. Yeah. Uh, and I, I'd been to counseling in and out of counseling since I was like 12. I was at my last leg and I remember calling my family and they flew me home early. And then I sat down with my, with my dad and he was just like, what do you want to do? He's like, you know, we'll do whatever it takes. Will you just that you don't have to do anything this summer. Let's just get you well. And I went to counseling three times a week for an entire summer, yeah. Yeah. just dealing with it and dealing with it and dealing with it and facing it and facing it. And it was at the end, I remember my, my very last, like that, that last counseling session was that breakthrough moment for me where I, it was just this dumb, it's such a stupid thing, but it made the world a difference for me. Where he's just he I I came in and I started yelling at him uh, the the, counselor, the, the the therapist. Oh, you went to male therapist. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. yeah. What do you have like a rule? Oh, I only I only go to young female therapists. <laughs> For some reason, it's the you only ones the I'm option. comfortable talking to. Uh-oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I've been to both. Yeah. Uh, so. Uh, have you been in both? Uh, All right. Oh, hey, what's in the bowl, bitch? Uh, okay. I'll, I'll finish the story. We'll move on. <laughs> yeah, so, sorry. Uh, it's fine. I, we can talk about all the therapists I banged later. So, uh, <laughs> Are you a male? Are you a female? It doesn't matter yeah. <laughs> as long as you're a therapist. So I, <laughs> um, I went in, I was yelling at him and I was just like, I was like, just, I was like, what is wrong with me? What the fuck is wrong with me? I've been in here this whole summer. Oh, w- tell me what's wrong with me. You're the professional you should know. And he's like, what do you think is wrong with you? Fuck you and your bullshit. Don't you reflect <laughs> this shit back in me. I know what you're doing. What if I don't know what's wrong with you? Well, that's bullshit. Well, I've been wasting all of my parents' money this, entire, <laughs> this whole summer. Like, fuck you. Like, I, I was like, I was like, you know what? For, for Forget this. And if you don't know what's wrong with me and I don't know what's wrong with me, like, yeah, oh, well, I guess maybe what's wrong with me is that I think there's something wrong with, with me. And then I just had this like moment and he's just quiet and he just lets me sink, sit there and sit with it and go, oh, yeah. And then he's like, all right, let's have some of your parents' money or whatever. I don't know what he said next. <laughs> I don't know what he said next. But it was like, it was a moment, but it took so long to get to that point yeah. of realizing the broken thought process and at the end of it you figured it out yourself which is amazing yeah but i was being sarcastic and yelling at him like i wasn't like (laughs) yeah (laughs) which is how they i mean that's how it works it doesn't nobody can tell you usually Mm -hmm. no no no. and which is a lot of that's a big problem why people they go to get help and they're surprised when no one's telling them what's wrong right it's it's very much it's still a problem that you have to figure out yourself Mm -hmm. yeah which comes back to the whole topic of comedians working through it. Right. This is, we learned that no one could tell us what's wrong, so we're going to try to figure out what's wrong. Right. Yeah. And, and then when we talk about it on stage in a way that allows people to laugh at the same time as you're talking about this serious thing, then people can relate to it and go and, and, and piece it into their own lives. And all of a sudden they go, oh, I'm not as alone with this. Yeah. True. Which is very funny. So, uh, <laughs> you started stand up when? 19 years old, uh, summer after my freshman year of college. What brought you to it? That's, you know, I get asked that question. I know. I know it's. it's no, I wasn't trite. even throwing you under the bus. It's just every time I we try to. We can stop right now. We don't have to. <laughs> I try to sort through my head what got me into it. And I think it was just, well, 
the whole the short story is I was a college athlete. I was a baseball player since I was four years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, opening day of my first NCAA game, I tore my UCL and fractured my elbow. Got Tommy John surgery. Oh my God. Oh my I was God. in. Uh, at that point, I didn't know I was never going to play again because Tommy John rehab is eight months long. So I was still going through a very strenuous. I don't rehab know what Tommy John means. It's essentially your UCL is kind of what controls your arm, and what they do is they cut out a part of your hamstring. And they drill three holes in your elbow and kind of manufacture another UCL. Mm-hmm. And it's like... In, so it's funny. You can do this at home. Yeah. Easy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. You need... You can uh, pick the kid up at right age. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's right next to the Ancestry.com. It's kid. one of those surgeries where it's like, it can be the end of your career. Yeah, or in the past. Come on, Daddy. The, Tommy Johns. <laughs> <laughs> the, way, the way it is... Ne- there's like a 95% success rate, but I eventually found myself in the 5% that was not getting better. Mm-hmm. And I was I dabbled in comedy, I think, because subconsciously I felt my arm was still in pain. And I knew because when you're a college athlete, that's 24 seven. You have 6 a.m. practice. You go to class. You have night practice. So like my whole schedule was written for me. And now I realize, one, I'm going to lose my scholarship. I can't afford college anymore. Mm -hmm. Two, I'm losing baseball, which was the only driving factor in my life. That was what kept me going. Mm -hmm. And then comedy, you know, from what if you read a book, if you listen to a podcast, you realize that it is a time consuming thing. So I was like, if I start doing this, this is going to take all of my time. I'll never have to process what just happened for me. And. I don't know. I've been to therapy so many times since, and I don't know if I ever processed my injury, but I, this, I think this last year was the first year I came to grips with it, but comedy helped me get there quicker. Right. I could have very easily just turned into an alcoholic right. who dropped out of college right. and does nothing, and instead I turned into an alcoholic who dropped out of college who does comedy. So well, you, uh, in, in, in psychotherapy, they call that um, sublimation. Where yeah. uh, you take all that negative energy, you can't just go. Well, I'm sad, so now I'm going to be happy. You can't <laughs> just, yeah. just, there's no, there there's no mechanism. To, for me, in my life, there always had to be a driving factor for something. Mm-hmm. There had to be something that convinced me to get up every day. Mm-hmm. Whether it was my family, my as dumb as my dogs, you know, little things that I could realize that I had to live a life for. Mm-hmm. And then when baseball was taken away, that was the big one. My whole life was ath- athletics first, academics second, mm-hmm. be good at baseball. Then I was like, I need to get good at something else. And I think I lucked out because in comedy, it, you get out of it what you put into it, which yes. is athletics. So right away, I was putting in every hour of my day into comedy. Mm-hmm. You had training from your athletic time. It, it trained you how to practice, how to... Exactly. Oh, my God. And especially yeah, the fact that I was a pitcher. So, you know, baseball is a team sport. But when you're a pitcher, if you fuck up, that's on you. Yeah, you're um, the showman. It, yeah, almost. if you walk the bases loaded, if you give up a home run, that's no one else on the team's fault. Right. Yeah. That's on you. And right. if you fuck up in comedy, that's on you. Oh, that's so, so bas- basically, a baseball team is an improv troupe with a stand-up. In the yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> that's you. That's my, what? Uh, like, <laughs> Hey, uh, pitcher, give us a suggestion. Any, any suggestion Catch the ball. <laughs> oh, man. That's yeah. uh, okay, so you're uh, – so, you know, I, I, I love this story. So you've basically – you said, you had, like, here's the dream, shattered, right along yeah. with, like, uh, the health of your arm. <laughs> yeah. And, and then you were like, okay, you had the wherewithal to go – I need to place this angst somewhere. Yeah, my head was, how can I quickly pick up these pieces and glue them back together? Mm-hmm. Instead of just letting them sit there and look at me in the face mm-hmm. every day. Look, you, It's like waking up and looking at just a broken 
glass. And you're like, how could I get this back together quickly? You and practiced immediate acceptance, by the way, it sounds like. Like, it's so hard. People get stuck right there. Yeah, uh, I was, I don't know, because I was mentally ill my whole life. And I think that was my, I wasn't even in, th- I come out of the mental institution. That was, that was in a five-year span, you know, from 17 to 22 now where all of this happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And for some reason or another, I figured it out then because I knew in some weird way my life depended on putting these pieces back together. Mm. If I didn't figure this shit out, I would have went nowhere. And it could, the argument could be made that I'm still going nowhere, but at least I have some sense of direction. All of us are going nowhere. Yeah, we're all going to die. Yeah. That's the theme of this podcast. Yeah. Is this exact theme is we're going to die. Yeah. yeah, deal with it. Yeah, and <laughs> it, was, it was just so crazy that I was able to figure it out like that. At, it's so at, great. At 18 years old. Yeah, that's the thing that really it's has me uh, uh, floored. Like, I'm just like, wow, that's... Uh, um, kind of what I hate you a little for it. Like, I also <laughs> admire you at the same time. Like it's <laughs> not only the thing for me, it was not only was I losing baseball, but I was losing my entire group yes. of friends. Yeah. yeah. Right. My it's life everything. was my, I, when you yeah. play a sport in college, those are the kids you're with 24 seven. You party with them, you go out to dinner with them, you eat with everything is yeah. with them. Mm-hmm. And then I saw the bond that was in comedy. Even when I, when I did my first mic, I saw it in a bad way because I went up, I was the new guy at this little venue in Jersey, and every comic who was in their little posse walked out when I went on stage. But to me, that was weird because I was like, oh, these guys have a bond similar to if my baseball team didn't like something, we walked out as a group. So I realized that this was my way to find my new group of people. Mm. Because part of being mentally ill is having a good uh, base of people around you who could get you through the tough times. For yes. sure. Yes. So not only did I have to pick up the pieces, but I needed to find a group of people who could help me gather them together. Yeah. And that's, weirdly enough, that's what comedy did. Comedy brought me out of what could have been the darkest hole of my life, and somehow I was able to, instead of even putting a foot in the hole, I kind of just jumped right over it. Mm-hmm. I saw it was there, but I never went into it. Right. Yeah. How does that play into your overall like writing and work ethic? Your background in athletics and having it all taken away from you in, in a heartbeat. Right, right, either so one. There's the writing part and the business part because in baseball, when you're in high school, it's a business. You are promoting yourself to get a scholarship, oh. similar to as a comic promoting yourself to get paid road work. So I knew right at the start, if I wanted to get out there and make money, I had to send a shit ton of emails. Just like when you're an athlete in high school, you got to send emails to colleges you're interested in saying, mm-hmm. hey, coach, come look at me play. I'm not that bad. So that sense, I figured out the business side of comedy that the business side of comedy, people think it's this crazy thing. It's put in the goddamn work and you'll see something. Yeah. Every month I send out about 200 to 300 emails to different clubs trying to book myself at it. Yeah. And it's about a 4% success rate. When did, but, you, when, did you, when did you start doing that? How soon in? Uh, about five, six months in. Mm, that's that was so the first soon. time I started featuring on the road as I was like six months in. That's so yeah. great. Yeah. So that, the athletics in that helped me with that. But then the writing part, I, uh, I still live with my parents. Like it's kind of normal, I guess, maybe, I don't know, but I forced them to clear out a room and build an office. Mm-hmm. So I built a comedy office in my parents' house. I mm-hmm. put like comedy memorabilia in there, a desk, my la- all the good stuff that you need. And I would force myself to sit down every day and write for at least five hours. Jesus. And that was what I did when I was newer. I don't do that anymore. My writing's all done on stage. How do you write? But how do you, when you would do that and you'd sit down um, and you write for five hours, 
what did that look like? What, did you have specific, would you say, okay, I'm going to work right about this? Or was it stream of consciousness, combination of both? It was a combination of both. I love process. That's what yeah, I'm It curious. was a combination of both. It was very much what I was feeling and what I'd felt years before. Because when you're a new comic, it's everything's out there. You yeah. could tackle anything you want from your life. Right. So I was just writing down what I thought I could put together. And that's kind of what I, I mean, it changed a lot now because of like, I was as I was in two bad car accidents this year. So for me sitting in front of a computer and writing doesn't happen anymore because my brain can't handle it. Mm -hmm. Oh shit. But, uh, the work process is still there. And the fact that I have a notepad on my phone, the little notes app, and I Mm. write down premises and then I take it to stage every night. So even my friends know, they know if they see me doing sets at night, that they're going to see new shit in there every day Mm -hmm. because that's my way of writing now is just on stage. So how has having a traumatic brain injury impacted your ability to do stand-up? And, and it sounds like you've adapted, you've, you've had to change your whole process. I have. I, I'll be honest in saying this is the one thing in my life that I haven't learned how to make funny yet. Mm-hmm. Because I don't think uh, being, I had a severe traumatic brain injury. And since then, I've seen firsthand my brain start to turn on me. Mm-hmm. My short-term memory, my yeah. long-term memory. Mm-hmm. I see every month I'm digressing a lot. My brain, it's not, it's not good. Things are getting a lot worse for me. So every month I could see firsthand me kind of losing the power of my brain. And that's, I haven't been able to make it funny yet because I'm not ready to be a person who forgets who they are. Mm. But at the same time, on stage, I always have to have notes on me mm-hmm. just in case I forget where I'm at. If I'm headlining on the road, I need to bring a full set list on stage with me because chances are 25, 30 minutes into the set, I'll forget where I'm at. And not even like in my set, like I'll forget that I'm at a club doing a show. You know, I mean, that sounds like an insanely difficult thing to deal with. And it's weird because I've been out of therapy and off of meds throughout this whole process. It's very dangerous, and I don't think any uh, mental health professional would recommend it, but I needed to prove to myself I could work through this without the help of medicine or a therapist. I wanted to make myself better instead of having someone try to make me better. Mm -hmm. And it's going okay, you know, I'm, I'm pretty much a happy person now. But at the same time, it's like some days you wake up and you're like, is this my new life for getting a friend that I went to high school with five years ago? And you see them and you forget their name. I don't remember song lyrics. I don't remember movie titles. I forget a lot of shit now. But it's like it's coping with it. And it comes back to the whole baseball thing where it's coping with a new reality. My new reality was not having baseball. Now my new reality is not having the brain I once had. as, As someone who has a very bad memory, I can tell you. Um, it's not going to bother you. No, uh, you'll, all that, all that time you spent with being able you'll to remember, forget, you you'll even forget. have a bad yeah, memory. You'll forget. It's gonna, yeah. it's, it's a, the benefit of having a bad memory is that, is that things do the things, things do fade. And then you end up, I think I'll throw this out there. You see how anal retentive I am about shit. Yeah. Uh, uh, in large part, it's all a, co- it's a coping mechanism. I have yeah. a large database of all of my thoughts and all that stuff. And it's all because it's a coping mechanism for the fact that I don't remember things particularly well. Yeah. So it, you may become is... really, really, really good at that shit. Yeah. I, it comes back to old. I worry that I'm going to forget one day how to be funny. That I'm going to forget what I channeled to get me where I am right now. I'm going to challenge you on that because I had a friend. We, we went skiing and he flipped, hit his head, and he, had a, he was in full-on concussion. Yeah. And the only thing that stayed was his sense. He's a hilarious Irish guy. The only thing that stayed was his sense of humor. He was hysterical. He couldn't remember what happened three seconds ago. And he kept making – he would just make jokes about what – he would like, oh, where am I? 
it's not that warm here, is it? Like, uh, <laughs> yeah, oh, and then, and then, five, and then he'd, yeah. he'd do it again. So, like, I, that I don't, is true. It Be- stayed. It's the only thing that stayed with wow, him. Because the gist of my story is this year in uh, February of uh, 2018, I was in my first car accident. I was driving home from my ex-girlfriend's apartment. I, uh, I dropped my drink on the floor. I went down to pick it up, hit the car in front of me. And uh, since I was hunched over picking something up, the airbag hit me square in the head. That caused a severe traumatic brain injury. I lost conscious for seven minutes. That's really what started this all. And then I, I coped with it. I learned how to do it. Mm-hmm. Then three months later, I was driving home at two in the morning from New York City. And uh, I was getting off my exit on the Garden State Parkway, which is 60 mile an hour speed limit. Guy was so drunk and high that he thought he pulled over to the side of the road. He really stopped his car in the middle turned off the lights, fell asleep in his car. By the time I saw him, it was the last minute. I hit him going 65 miles an hour, shattered my windshield, broke my foot, tore some stuff up. So right at the, that was the week where I came to grips with, okay, this is what it is now. And then I just totaled my second car. This was the one I thought I was going to die in this one. Yeah. There was, uh, I was a hundred percent certain of it because I'm not, I'm not a super religious person. Uh, I am a little bit, but in the split, the first one, I didn't see the accident coming. And the second one, I saw the car. I knew I had a split second. And I literally, for the first time in my life, I said out loud, if this is my time, I am okay with it. I've lived a life that I'm happy with. Mm. And I said that out loud, and I took my hands off the wheel. Because if you tense up in an accident, that's how you do get more hurt. So I took my hands off the wheel. And lo and behold, I only broke my foot and tore some stuff and got cut up a lot. Uh, But that was kind of like... That was a really big curveball in life for me because no one has to deal with two accidents like that in the span of three months. And Mm -hmm. mind you, the week before that, me and my ex-girlfriend had just broken up. That was my first adult relationship. We broke up right when we hit six months. We were together for a long enough time. That was my first girlfriend since I was 17 years old. And that was right after the breakup is when I stopped going to therapy and meds. So all of this hit me, two car accidents, a breakup right then and there. And uh, I don't know if I've coped with it yet. Do you think that a, a part of it is that it's hard to worry about? It puts in perspective what's important. Exactly. I think that's why I'm so happy now because right. personally, I'm living life as if I'm on borrowed time now. Right. Someone in the universe you're, didn't want me to be you're here. You're grateful. Yeah, I'm very grateful for. I don't think, was I ready to die in that moment? Yeah, I was okay with it because I liked my life. But I don't think I was someone who was supposed to die at 22. I do think I have enough to share to live a little longer. Yeah, yeah. At least give me 30. Yeah. Let's talk about Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) Damn, dude. That's amazing. Thanks for sharing, man. Yeah, Yeah, it's... uh, Uh, I I am so glad that you shared. I'm so glad we asked. Uh, It's fucking great. I don't know if it's stuck with the theme, but I do think it's a story that... I just, the overall thing is I just want, I do talk about it on stage. The car accident I do, my traumatic brain injury, I don't. And the overall thing is me trying to make the audience realize whatever life throws at you, you could get through it. There's something funny in the end to be had. Right. There's a, I don't, I don't want to do a whole bit, but there's something about the car accident where it, I do talk about it on stage because I want people to realize like, hey, this is going to happen, but you could also end up on stage telling the story that you don't have to let it beat you. Right. Which is, I think that's the overall theme of my life is just don't let the curve, don't let the curveball strike you out. Adjust to it and go the other way with it. Which is which is so great. I, I love that. That's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Hey, if you're digging what we're doing here and you think someone else would benefit from it, please tell them about us. If you're listening on the podcast app on your iPhone, just look in the lower right corner. 
there's three dots. Tap that, then share episode. You can also tap the cartoon image of Harrison and me in the app if you have the episode selected. And then you'll see all the show notes that I painstakingly write. Did you know that that shit was even there? I've even added some easy Facebook and Twitter sharing links. Okay, back to the show. I actually do briefly want to talk about Twitter, although I was kidding. But like, yeah, no, I'm <laughs> uh, you have. Let me see here: uh, twenty-eight thousand tweets, thirty-six thousand followers, <laughs> and one list. What's up with that list, bro? I have Did two you, lists. Yeah. It only says one. I checked yesterday. Okay, so essentially, I follow a lot Wait, of people. Can I just say, step it up with the lists? Like, come yeah. on, bro. Yeah. yeah, this is the list, man. <laughs> 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 You can make you some less. Do you need help with that? Okay, Twitter. You have quite a Twitter presence. Yes. And you said off mic that it plays a large role in your act and success. I'd love to hear you talk about it. It does because, I mean, when you have a following on Twitter that's very receptive to who you are as a person, Mm -hmm. if you take a bit to Twitter, they will let you know right away if it's funny or not <laughs> which is the same thing as stand up stand up is you put sure. something out and right away you find out if it's funny or not yeah and twitter's the same way if i put up a joke and 10 minutes go by and it only has 5 likes i know it's a shitty joke yeah, right? yeah, yeah. so for me it lets me know what i could bring to stage and what for i can sure. and then there's the whole thing about there's the the twitter comic which there's a certain type of comedy that works on twitter that doesn't work on stage and i do incorporate that as well mm-hmm. but Every now and then, a bit from Twitter does make it to stage and becomes a bit that I love to do. Yeah. And uh, the Twitter, as a, like I said, I follow a lot of people. So if someone follows me, I follow them back. I reciprocate. I mean, there is a difference. I think I have 35-plus thousand followers, and I follow about 25,000. So there's always a 10,000 difference. But when you follow someone— Did you start with 10,000? You're like, I'm going to follow 10,000 people, but I'm going to stop right there. Yeah. Uh, oh, that's they got to catch up. Yeah, it's not even a—I I drew a line where I wanted to follow. I, I, I follow people that are very specific to my comedy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I like to follow people who express interest in being a comedy fan or a mixed martial arts fan because that is what the majority of my Twitter is. Yeah. And uh, so when you follow someone back, subconsciously it makes them think— And it is true. These people are friends of mine. If you interact on every tweet of mine and I interact with you, whether we've met or not, you're a friend. This is more than just following someone. We are now part of each other's lives. Every day I could count on you to like my tweet or I could count on you to troll me if that's the case. (laughs) But then in turn, when I go on the road, these are the people who come out. These are the people who buy merch. These are the Mm -hmm. people who hang out with me after. Because for three plus years, they felt like friends of mine. And they really are because when I meet them in person, they're good people. Weirdly enough, I have a lot of followers, but a lot of them are like-minded people in the sense that they've been through shit. They like comedy. This is their coping mechanism. Right. Mm -hmm. I don't have a very politically correct following because I tweet some awful shit sometimes and they tweet some awful shit sometimes. And we just come to terms with my big thing is people are awful as a whole. And we learn how to make things less awful. And that's what Twitter does for me. It gives me a voice. You know, I can't go on stage and talk to 35,000 people. I can do that on Twitter. Mm. And, you know, although probably some of them are bots and porn stars <laughs> who don't pay attention to my tweets. <laughs> but, you know, there is every now and then, you know, there's about 50 to 200 Porn stars are people. known for not paying good attention to tweets. Yeah, I am friends with one porn <laughs> yeah. star on Twitter. My favorite porn star followed me back and we've been friends. You can take four <laughs> loads, but you can't follow me back. Come on, dude. <laughs> I watched you at your worst. Follow me at my best. Bukaki porn, and you can't retweet one fucking thing. It's just a click. It's not a dick. Nice. Is that a pound? So, yeah, it's like 
when I go on the road and I get to meet these people who have just been fans of mine, it, mm-hmm. that's what comedy is to me. For sure. Is realizing that I affected these people enough that they will make it a part of their day to go see me talk for an hour on stage. We've started, we just got booked through our podcast. Uh, Jeff went to the show and did the show. And it was like, oh, this is crazy. Like, this is the first time I've done a show where there's like three there people, were people or there who knew about the podcast. They yeah, yeah. Came They're up like, and oh, I recognize your voice. That is something beautiful, inherently beautiful about that is people For recognizing sure. your work and wanting to come see you because of it. Yes. It's an amazing feeling that yeah. you really don't feel in other. I don't, maybe there is because I've never done anything but comedy, mm-hmm. but it's a very specific feeling knowing that these people appreciate what you do. Right. Exactly. And take the time to actually fucking show you. Right. Mm-hmm. Not enough people show appreciation. Right. But yeah. Social media is good with that. Uh, I have a, I have all these like little things I call social, so, social routines, yeah. mm-hmm. things I do just in, in my social life that I think are funny to me. Uh, and, and one of the ones I do is I tell random people, good job. And I watch people get upset because they think I'm being sarcastic. And then I'll smile and I'll be like, you know, people don't say that enough these days. <laughs> and then, they go, then they laugh and they go, true. It's, it's almost like I get the same response yeah. almost every time. I'll yeah. tell a teller or, or like a, a cashier. I'll be like, good job today. And they're like, I'm like people don't say that enough these days. <laughs> it's so great. That's funny. Was there a moment for you as a stand-up where it can be through, like, you listening to them on an interview or it can be a close friend, a mentor, like someone who made a big impact, like a moment where a comedian told you something and it just was a click moment? Okay, yeah. Can I share two? One, yeah, for one, sure. One from a podcast because, as you had mentioned, I'm, I do where I'm a regular at the cellar. And uh, I, it always amazed me, the comedy seller, and it always amazed me how much fear there was behind the club. Mm-hmm. It's a very scary club. Yeah. And there is a podcast, uh, Pete Holmes' You Made It Weird. There's an episode with Aziz and Zari. To me, I've always been a fan because, again, he had a similar story where he had success from a young age. Mm-hmm. So uh, essentially, paraphrasing, Pete asks him, you know, how did he get where he got? And Aziz said one thing that always stuck out with me. He said, don't care about what they think about you. Just be undeniably funny. Mm-hmm. And to me, that is the most beautiful thing. Because if people think you're a dick, but you go on their show and you murder, you're still a great comic. Right. Yeah. So getting to the point where you could put the bullshit aside and be undeniably funny, that stuck out to me. Because coming up 19, 20, 21, sometimes people don't vibe with you because you're, cha- you're growing. Yeah. I'm growing as a person. You're solidifying your identity at that point in yeah, your life. You know, it's and, not and formed sadly yet. Sadly, in comedy, sometimes a lot of the people you meet are 30 plus, yeah. and they don't want to hang out with a 20-year-old who's trying to figure out his fucking life. Exactly. So I just got to the point where I put aside the relationships for a little while, and I, I became shy, but I worked on being undeniably funny on every show. Follow-up question on that. To you, what are the key or keys for you to being undeniably funny? Well, the big one is, like I just said, put aside the bullshit. People will not like you for whatever reasons they make up in their own head. Mm-hmm. And what a comic Chris Murphy told me is more times than not, someone will not like you because of something that is wrong with them. Yes. Something they did wrong in their life <laughs> will make them not resonate and you with represent you. So something. once I learned that, I was like, all right, this person's going to talk shit about me no matter what. So let it not affect my writing. Yeah. So I would just, no matter who was in the room, whose show it was, I would go up and I would do my best stuff. And I would just try to be undeniably funny. And I think a part of being undeniably funny that a lot of people miss is you do have to work new stuff in a lot. I'm a big proponent of always working new because Mm -hmm. that's how you grow your material. Mm -hmm. 
And I think if you're just the guy who goes up and does the same 10 minutes, you're going to be known as the guy who goes up and does the same 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. If you're the guy who goes up and does a killer five, but incorporates in a new five and some of that shit's really good. That's undeniable. Mm -hmm. You are undeniably, not only now you're undeniably funny, but you're undeniably a hard worker. And the two do go hand in hand. Yeah. Because oftentimes the comics who work hard are the funniest comics. You're going to, you're rarely going to see a comic who dedicates his life to this and totally fucking sucks. Yeah. And then the other thing in that interview that stood out, bringing it back to the cellar, is Pete Holmes said, how did you go into the cellar at that age? And how did you audition? And Aziz just simply says, it is a room full of people who are willing to laugh. Yeah. And mm -hmm. that changed my life, not only when I auditioned at the cellar, but shows before that, I stopped with the nerves because I was like, this is a room full of people who wants to laugh. Mm -hmm. I can't read into it any more than that. Yeah. Whether it's the best club or the worst club, there's a group of people here who want to have a good time, and my job is to make sure they do. So that changed my whole entire thing on God, it. I could even, hearing you say that, I'm thinking, I could just say that when I'm hosting. I'm working on my hosting skills right now, mm -hmm. uh, and um, you'll, you'll see me struggle through it on Tuesday. <laughs> yeah. uh, and I could even just go on stage and be like, who's ready to laugh? Yeah. Then, then show me you're ready to laugh. Let's fucking do this. Yeah, like, exactly. Are you ready to laugh today? Did you come in here to laugh? Great. Let's yeah. fucking do this. Yeah. And then I learned... Uh, I learned this through, this was the second one I wanted to share, is that as a comic who is further ahead than someone, mm -hmm. you should never stop showing love to comics who are below you. Absolutely. Fuck, and I yeah. learned this because I, I auditioned at the cellar, I got past whatever. Then it comes to my first spot there. I was as nervous as I could. I was more nervous for my first spot than the audition. Mm -hmm. It was on a Friday night, 8 o'clock show. Greer Barnes is a friend of mine. He was standing outside. I expressed to Greer how nervous I was, and he told me, he said, don't worry, nobody's going to come down there and watch you. We all know it's your first set. We're going to give you a break. So I was like, all right. So I go down. I grab the mic on the cellar after I get called up. And if you've never been on the stage on the cell, what you have to realize is you could see the hallway perfectly. It is a perfectly lit hallway. The door's open. You could see who's standing there. I grab the mic. I look up. Greer is standing right in the hallway with his <laughs> arms crossed. Mm -hmm. So I was like, Are you shit. smiling? No. So I was like, <laughs> shit, he's going to watch me and judge me. So I told my first yeah. joke, my opening joke, and it killed. And he was hunched over, howling, clapping. My whole set, I looked at him. He was having the time of his life. I got off stage. He never had to do this, but he brought me in. He hugged me, and he said, welcome to the family. You're going to be here for a long time. And oh, to oh, me, man. that was when I realized that put the bullshit aside. If yeah. you like what someone's doing and if they're a good person, express it to them. Right. I know. Because that little gesture will change a comic's life. Just like I was, Sean Donnelly's one of my favorite comics. I wasn't yeah, even friends great. with him. Mm -hmm. I was recording my album at the New York Comedy Club. This was when I was 20, 21 years old. I'm on my way. I'm freaking out. I'm having anxiety. I'm stuck in the gay pride parade traffic. So I was in traffic for three and a half hours. I'm not even at the club yet. It's getting close to showtime. I'm yeah. freaking out. Mm -hmm. I look at my phone. There's a message from Sean Donnelly, who I've never met, just a fan of. Yeah, yeah. And it says, kill it tonight. You're going to do great. You're a good comic. Have fun with it. What the fuck? And that, that maybe even more than the Greer story changed my entire perception of comet, comedy. Yeah. I was, and now I've transitioned it into my life as a comic. It's so important to express your gratitude for other comics because... I, I want to interject real quick. Yeah. Um, I think what you're saying is really great. I don't think it's limited to comedy. No, and, it's and a I, life I, thing. I, I do think it's a life thing. And I, I um, in general, uh, I think... Um, it's really important, my personal philosophy on it, is to treat others the way you wish you had been treated. 
and 100 uh, the golden rule yeah it is and I, I know it's the golden rule and it's trite in a way but like practicing it is not something one ever regrets no because but the reverse is true if you don't practice it and you and you treat somebody shitty because of your ego because of jealousy or whatever and you uh, then you look back and you have to either you're stuck in this place where you either have to accept that you did something that is uh, against how you would have been treated yeah. that, that is, is in violation of that. Um, or you have to constantly do this mental backflips of justifying yourself yeah. of yeah. why they deserve what you did. And so I, I think I, know, like, I was a bully growing up I, and I not even to make it. I deal with it every day mm. where I remember the things I said and the things I did to people who were smaller than me because I could do it. Mm. And uh, my justification was always, I was bullied, I could bully them, which goes against every belief I have now. And every day I am truly upset at what I was when I was younger. You didn't know. Yeah, but my justification is that, you know, I grew into someone that I am happy, and I think that was part of the whole experience. Right, yeah. But it's it's, not enough people realize the impact someone else's actions has on them. And also on an internal level, I've found that when you take the step— to intentionally hurt another person, it wounds you too. Yeah. You're stuck with it. That's now, that's on yeah. your record. You get to, you keep that. It's not an easy thing to shake, I yeah. think. For we were talking about rappers earlier, which is weird to bring it back to, but we were talking about Brother Ali, and he has, an, he has a lyric in one of his songs that I heard recently. We're paraphrasing because I don't remember it specifically. He says, when you try to take the soul of another man, you strengthen him and lose your own. which I think is one of the most deep lyrics I've ever heard because that comes back to this whole thing where, Mm. and I'm sorry if we got off topic, but I think this is something that not enough comics realize. Part of it. Yeah. Come on. Let's talk about sex. You guys ready to listen to some of Dan's material? Oh, no. Yeah, uh-huh. you forgot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I was just going to keep talking until we didn't do that. <laughs> Too bad, sir. All right. So this next track, it's actually two tracks, and I think we'll split it up into two separate parts. Uh, this first one is called Bipolar, and it's from Dan's album, his 2017 album called, say it? Not enough pieces. Not enough pieces. I was 21 and 20 when I wrote this. Forgive me. <laughs> I like to be honest on stage. Uh, I'm diagnosed with bipolar disorder, major depressive disorder, and I'm an insomniac, and surprisingly enough, still single, ladies. So, uh. <laughs> if you're looking for a comedian who's been on TV twice, has no money, lives at home with his parents, and is one mental illness away from being a serial killer. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding, I could never be a serial killer. Do I look like I would chase anything? (laughs) Three steps and you're gone. Have a nice night. I'm sorry for the confusion. I think the exit to the woods is on the right. I am. Uh, I am part of the 2.5% of Americans that are lucky enough to be diagnosed with bipolar disorder, which means if you don't like my jokes, I really won't care. (laughs) Or maybe I will. I don't know yet. That's the thing. I'm bipolar. I take a medicine for my bipolar disorder called Abilify. I don't know how many of you are familiar with it. It's an $800 designer drug. Luckily enough, your boy's still on his mom's insurance. Let's go! 
There's two main side effects of Abilify, though. The first one, worm-like movements of the tongue. <laughs> the second one, random chomping motions of the teeth. Which means, ladies, if you spend the night with me, it's like Russian roulette. <laughs> You're getting the best night of sex or the worst night of sex. Porno-type licks or jaws. Your move. I also take a medicine for depression. Uh, the doctor just started me on Prozac. I don't know how many of you are familiar with it. The doctor sat me down. She goes, listen, Dan, this may increase your suicidal thoughts. <laughs> or it may make you lose weight. I was like, that's a no-brainer, doc. I'm in. <laughs> I am dying to be thin. <laughs> Plus, I would never kill myself at this weight. I weigh 280 pounds. You think I'm jumping off a building at this weight? Look at this radius. With my luck, I'd take out a group of foreigners. Or even worse, a dog. Oh, that's great. That was fantastic. Uh, yeah, man. I forgot those jokes. <laughs> that's great. You're, uh, I, I noticed you have a really, um, you have a specific cadence to you. Yeah, it's funny. Listening back to that, mm -hmm. I have changed so much on stage. Mm -hmm. My cadence is nowhere near that anymore. Mm -hmm. To me, because it used to be very set up punch. Mm -hmm. Now, da, 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 yeah. da, da, da. exactly. Yeah. Kind of a tellish. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Now I realize that I'm just. What I do off stage is what I do on on stage now mm -hmm. because I. It's always the goal, right? Yeah, I started getting too cadency, but at that uh -huh. point in my life, that was how it worked. Right. That mm -hmm. was how I was taught to do a joke. Da 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 da. You know. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I, it's funny. I don't want to jump ahead of you, but I realized that I did similar things to Mark Marin mm -hmm. in the sense that I did like a kind of hacky, easy joke to ease them into the darker right. joke of the exit yeah. to the woods is on the right. Uh huh. So I, I, I brought them in with an easy laugh. Uh huh. To uh -huh. hit them with the hard stuff. Right. Yeah. Right. Your economy of words is fantastic. You, you don't use a least amount of words to get to the funny. Mm -hmm. Like you have no fat on the joke. Oh, right. well, that comes back to Twitter. Yeah, yeah. Because Twitter used to be 140 characters, so I had to get to the punch Ooh, quick. Ooh, shit. And when you're, when you're rehearsing for this, yeah. is it I do this, I re, I'm going to say this 20 times to make sure I get it just right. Uh, so that it, so that it's muscle memory by then. At this point of my career, yes, that's what it was. Uh -huh. It was write the bit, test the bit a few times. If it worked, mm -hmm. stand in front of my mirror with a mic, mm -hmm. keep doing the bit and what was my cadence at the time mm -hmm. until it was muscle memory. Right. It's not like that anymore, but at this point of the album, that's exactly what it was. The undercurrent here is that you're okay with being bipolar. I mean, it really comes through, at least in this material, or you're conveying it. The core of comedy for me... When I started, and you would hear it a lot in this album, is self-deprecation, which mm. to, I don't do it as much now, but what I learned in that, what I still do on stage is no matter what I tell the crowd, I want them to know I am okay with it. Right. Because once a crowd thinks you're not okay with what's going on in your life, mm. they will turn on you quickly. Yeah. Right. They will become concerned. they'll feel bad for you. Yeah. yeah. There is a fine line between feeling bad and feeling okay, and they think you're okay with it so they can laugh. Yes. 
let's do uh, let's do the next bit. This yeah. is called Booty Juice. Oh, no. Hell yeah. Suit was not a good option tonight. Uh, it is hot up here. It is like this first week of summer, but my balls are on week 12. Uh, <laughs> when I was 17, I spent five days in a mental institution. And by day five, I was like, hey, I'm not that crazy anymore. Get me out of here. Because you see a lot of things in a mental institution that open your eyes. I remember this one didn't open my eyes that much, but the first night we were there, they made everyone sit in a circle and talk about why they were in the mental institution. So we're going around in the circle. It's like drugs, depression, alcohol. We get to one girl. She goes, I'm a sex addict. And I laugh. I go, ha ha, that's funny. She goes, what's so funny about that? You don't know what it's like to want to sleep with every person you see. It's like, honey, I'm a man. I've already slept with everyone in this therapy group twice in my head. <laughs> the one that really got to me was every night they would make us do therapeutic exercises to keep our minds off things. Great. They would make us do puzzles as the therapeutic exercise. Great. The only problem was that no puzzle ever had enough pieces. <laughs> God damn it, guys. If there's one place where a puzzle needs enough pieces, it's a mental institution. <laughs> Have you ever seen someone lose their shit because SpongeBob was missing a left eye? <laughs> it's not pretty. I remember one night vividly we were doing a puzzle of a princess, don't judge, and the princess was missing two pieces from her tiara. So this girl, I won't say how big she was, she was a big, big girl, she gets mad, she gets angry that the princess is missing the tiara. Her reaction is to pick up the table and throw the table against the wall. Then I hear these two words uttered together, Booty juice. Now, I thought they were going to break out into a very nice dance shaking their asses. That's not what booty juice was. They yell booty juice, and a doctor comes out with about a six-inch long needle, and he stabs it into the girl's ass, and one second, she's like, fucking missing pieces. Down. <laughs> And I couldn't help but thinking, like, you know who probably got his hands on some uh, booty juice? Bill Cosby. Anyway, let me open a water. <laughs> <laughs> Three waters. What'd they think? I was going to die up here? Am I that fat? Holy shit. Three <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's great. That's I like fucking... how they kept in the water part. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's great. Oh, gosh. That was painful. You sound fucking great, yeah. man. That was a, it, there was a very hot crowd. Let's talk about some of the techniques here. Uh, one of my favorite things you do in here, uh, and I'm going to jump around a bit, but you, uh, you do a mic slap. Yeah. Uh, just that little, those little maneuvers, those, uh, like Greer Barnes is a grandmaster of it, or you have a sound effect or something, just, just something that just quick 
it, it snaps into focus a visual in your head. 100%. Yeah. I even did that in the, if you, if you heard in the beginning, I lost them. I lost them a little bit. You could hear them get quiet when I talk about the sex addict. Mm-hmm. And then when she tells me that, not only do I laugh at it, but I put a snort in there. <laughs> I snorted yeah. in it because that is such a quick way to get them back on your side. Yeah. It's inherently funny to watch someone in front of a room full of people snort laugh. You're laughing. Yeah. You're, you're also like, you're admitting that you sound kind of like a dick yeah. or like it's delivering know home it the all, point of I guess. how dumb I thought totally. her sentence was. Yeah, for sure. For mm-hmm. sure. It's really funny that you, and the mic slap is the same. It's my way of making sure they're still in the story. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. when you're a long form comic, which at times I am, you have to put things in the story yeah. to make them for, it's a barometer joke for you to see if they're actually still in tune with the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oftentimes yep. you'll tell a story and you'll lose them. If you don't have something in there, that's supposed to get a laugh and uh-huh. it doesn't then uh-huh. abandon the story for sure. Uh, that's a really good, I'm, I'm only just learning about exit strategies because yeah. my bits tend to be really rather involved. It's cohesive. I have a thing I'm going after. I, I, I love There's a lot of story. I'm a big story person and I've never known what to do when I know the crowd is not into it. And I, and plowing through is like, Oh, and, and now, and somebody else, it might've been, Sean Donnelly, a upper level comedian was like, oh, you just need like, you have to have like different exit routes, like a, like it's like a highway. Mm-hmm. And then you just have different exits you can take if you yeah. figure out people aren't with you. And yeah, I'm like, yeah. I never thought of that. I thought yeah. you just had to do it all the way. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. a good way to look at it. I always call it a barometer. The exit strategy is great. Yeah. Because if if you have something in there that you realize they're done with that bit, yeah. then yeah, that's, there is the exit strategy. But if you see that a crowd is done with the bit, Oftentimes you don't even need to. You just be like, "Well, that's done," and yeah. it usually gets a mm-hmm. quick pop, and you're For you're sure. out of it. You're done, right? Because right. exit strategy should be very short, right? Yes. Well, that's what they mean. Is like have yeah. points in the story to where you can abandon. leave it. Yep. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Uh, SpongeBob's left eye, so specific. Yeah. <laughs> and now it actually, I think that was the puzzle, if I recall. It's a blurry moment. It's blurry because of my brain injury, but I do think that was the actual puzzle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there, there's one in here. Where you go, uh, I had sex with uh, everyone in this room twice in my head. Yeah, that's great. I went uh, for a moment. I was like, oh, the old standard, all men want to fuck everything joke. But then when you said twice in my head, it became new again. Uh, Yeah. yeah. I was like, oh, he's going to. Oh, nope. There it is. Yeah. Some of it in there was like, I I hated hearing the Cosby thing now. It was so. Oh, yeah. Your face was great. That was a riff at the time. That was not written. I had never written a Cosby joke. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I don't know. Now it's forever. For some reason. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) I don't know why I riffed that because it had gotten a pop. I could have gotten out of it. Mm-hmm. And then I added, I mean, sure, the Cosby one got it a bigger, it got a bigger laugh. You mm-hmm. know why? Because I guess I was want getting one more. Yeah, I was Everybody getting, wants that one was more. The, that was the simple case of a comic in front of a hot crowd wanting more. Yeah. Which mm-hmm. is weird because when you're doing an album, you shouldn't try to push for more because it's going to be there forever. <laughs> oh, it's, it's always, it, that's the case. You just like, you get it. And then you're like, I think I, I think they've got another one in them. And then yeah. you just try this untested thing. You're yeah. like, ha ha. And they're like. Yeah, we liked that one before. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Come on. Let's talk about sex. This next clip is from Patton Oswalt. It's off his 2009 album, My Weakness is Strong. And the bit is called Sad Boy. And I'm trying to improve my health and my outlook because of my daughter. But that's like 80% of the reason. The other 20% is because I sincerely believe 
in 20 years, society's gonna collapse, or we're gonna be living in this weird, irradiated wasteland, like in The Road Warrior. So in my head, I'm like, well, I'm clearly going to be being chased by mutants on motorcycles. I'm way, I can't run very fast, so I need to slim down. And we all know that motorcycle mutants are cannibals, so I'm just too much of a treat, right? I'm like a luau to those guys. I gotta focus on stringy, or I'm dead. By the way, that abiding belief in the coming road warrior wasteland is, that's the reason I tried to go off my meds. I take Prozac, and I tried to reduce my Prozac intake because I was like, well, I don't want to be out in the wasteland fat and depressed. Like, that, there's not going to be any Prozac after the collapse. I'm going to end up chained to the front fender of the lead marauder's nitro truck with my ass hanging out, and he'll just use me as incentive for the other marauders to go out and bring gasoline back. Like, anyone brings back a gallon of gas can buttfuck the sad boy if anyone wants to get out there. Get this thing done. Anyone? You get 10 minutes with the sad boy. Isn't that right, sad boy? Like, I don't give a shit. Fine, I'll do it. It's It's all bullshit anyway. Yeah, do me right in the dirt button, Mohawk. I don't care. My ass is like a tube of circus peanuts. I don't even feel it. I don't even feel it. I don't care. Give a shit. Oh, my God. Dirt butt. The circus peanuts makes it festive. (laughs) So I started reducing my Prozac day by day, trying to wean myself off of it. Now, I have a dog, and if I want to take my dog for a walk, I've got to put on my shoes, I've got to grab some poo bags, and I've got to get his leash. If he sees any one of those events happen, he gets incrementally more excited. <laughs> so if he sees the shoes go on, he hits 20% and goes, oh, shit! <laughs> this is looking good! <laughs> but he's very guarded in his enthusiasm because I put my shoes on before and left without him, so he knows he hits 20%. I put the shoes on and I grab the poo bags. He goes, oh, <laughs> Unless he's making the world's lamest pair of werewolf hands, a walk is about to happen. (laughs) And then I grab that leash. Oh, he goes, fuck, fuck. Oh, my God, we're walking. So my depression was the same way. Like, the first couple days without Prozac, my depression was like, oh, shit, this looks really good. (laughs) I'd forgotten a couple days in the past, so it was very... Careful. But then a week went by and it was, oh, <laughs> I think we're going to get. In <laughs> a month with no Prozac. Oh, my depression was like a happy puppy just running through my body. I actually felt bad about going back on the Prozac because I felt like, oh, I haven't taken him to the park in a while. Like, I, I wanted to give him a couple of days just to put on your bathrobe for eight days straight. Okay. <laughs> I know I haven't done this in a while. Does this feel better? Watch your Princess Bride 11 times in a row. Okay, let's watch the Princess Bride 11 times in a row. 
Oh, depression. This is the best day you've ever had. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, yeah. That's so, fucking great. That's oh, my man. favorite. Uh, it's, my, it's my favorite, just like, analogy of depression I've ever heard. I like the post-apocalyptic depression so much. <laughs> I love that so much because I do think about that constantly. Yeah. Because, like, you know when you have friends that are, de- they kind of, like, medicate themselves and it's like, I feel like you, you aren't getting to the root. Like, it's just like a very small, yeah. it's like a, a little happy person that is, like, sometimes yeah. sad so they medicate. And it's like, you're just going to be such a shit box during the apocalypse. Oh, like, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, and it's coming soon. So <laughs> I just thought that was fucking such a funny way to do it. And it, it it's the whole the, a lot of these guys approach mental illness with silliness mm-hmm. and referential humor. I think the word that we haven't hit yet with it is it's a disarming factor. Yeah, it disarms the crowd and brings them into the more serious thing. And he does it throughout the whole thing. Yeah, there's mm-hmm. silliness in every tag of every that single joke. one, and there's seriousness. I'm a luau. Yeah. The, <laughs> <laughs> So what? <laughs> he calls his asshole the dirt button. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I, it's, it's, do me the dirt button, Mohawk. <laughs> yeah, Mohawk, yeah. The, the interesting to, thing to me was every transition in the joke mm-hmm. was serious. Mm-hmm. The serious parts were in the transitions. He admits that he's off his meds. That was a transition. Mm-hmm. And then... Uh, what is he? I forgot. He, uh, he gave the voice of the dog, Silly... And then right from the voice of the dog, he goes into, uh, it's like my depression, a serious yep. transition. Yep. He doesn't put any jokes in the transitions, which I found very interesting, because a lot of comics do mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. For sure. And, and he, he intentionally digs the hole of, yeah. and builds that tension. Oh, where is this going? Like, there's a moment where he's talking about the puppy, and it's, it's, it's entertaining, but you're just like, wait, wh- where are we? And he's, he's building even just the tension of what topic are we on? Yeah. He builds that tension to break it and bring it right back to now we're back on depression again. Yep. And then he does the the robe and the princess bride. Those are the two <laughs> yeah. things to, that he mm-hmm. used for his depression. Mm-hmm. But that go that's silly again, right into depression. It's uh-huh. so it was it was such a good bit mm-hmm. because at no point did you hear the crowd go aw. Nope. They never felt bad for him. Nope. Because it was the same thing underlying it all was he's okay with it. He's okay with it. That's right. He's and already made. He's so okay with it that he's already made up scenarios yes. for him to be okay with it when he's getting anally raped. He's still okay. With <laughs> I love that description right there. Who cares? I don't, I don't give a shit. It's all yeah. bullshit. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's it's so an impressive thought. Anyway. It's, it's all yeah. bullshit anyway. Do me the dirt butt and see if I care. My butt's like a tube of circus penis. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. it's it's so that's such the depressive like mindset. Circus penis make it festive. Yeah. <laughs> but that that mindset is is so. He so clearly articulates it and turns it into this cartoon mm-hmm. yeah. twice. Yeah. yeah, that could have been a joke that could have been made into an animated thing. It yeah. would have been funny. For sure. Yeah. 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 The puppy, the puppy. I love that. Yeah. Even though, like, there are other parts that are, to me, are probably objectively funnier than... I laughed the hardest at that. <laughs> I love that because he made his depression a happy puppy that's excited to yes. get out. The, it, he couldn't have had more opposite things. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. There's no depressed puppy. Yeah. It doesn't exist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I never heard this bit before, but that's exactly what my dogs do. It's like, all right, the shoes are on. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. He's got the bags. <laughs> the yeah. leash. It's yeah. like that was uh, – and it's funny because it, Brian Regan did it. I mean, when you give a voice to a dog – it is so funny. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
somehow, for some reason, an animal talking is always funny. For Anthrop- sure. An- it's not anthropomorphic. Like, he caninopomorphizes yeah. the depression. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> <laughs> so great. Yeah. How many people have compared the depression to a dog it's yeah. amazing it's so good and the depression is so happy uh-huh yeah yeah it, is he the makes, opposite of what it is it's so silly it's yeah. it's totally serious he's utterly hopeless nothing matters For everything is dark sure. it's a puppy yeah yeah yeah. It's so good it's really fun when you um take something that's really intense and hard to talk about and then you the the analogy for it is something that is so light Mm-hmm. And just yeah. fun. And there's like no, like zero stakes. And like, he gave you the hint that he was going to do this for the bit because he yeah. opened up talking about his daughter. Yeah. And yeah. then right from his daughter, he went, he jumped to the word motorcycle mutant. Yeah. Yeah. Which yeah. was his way of saying, this is going to be a silly bit. Right. Yeah, yeah, I just yeah. went from the thing I love most to a motorcycle yeah. mutant. Right. And he, sure. he lets you know up front, like, hey, this is going to get weird mm-hmm. and it was it was a great bit yeah. yeah yeah i i really love it i i just i i remember i've listened to that bit obviously many times it is just i i don't i just don't know that i've ever heard anybody approach depression in a way on stage that allows people in that far mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. and and it still feels like safe territory yeah come on let's talk about sex a huge thanks to Dan Lamort. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, buddy. And let's plug some stuff. So first of all, check out Dan Lamort's album on Spotify and iTunes. It's called Not Enough Pieces. Not Enough so Pieces. Leave a, a review, please. Yeah. yeah, yeah yes, leave a good, leave a nice review. Enjoy Listen it. to it on Spotify and then leave the review on iTunes. <laughs> it's all still free. <laughs> You've already downloaded this podcast. You're halfway there. Yeah. It's on the same fucking. <laughs> the link is in the show notes. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, he'll be headlining Caroline's on Broadway on December 27th at 9.30 yeah, p.m. Yeah, I'm excited for that one. Ticket cool. links are in the show notes. Is there a discount code? Yes, the code is DAN, and oh. it takes like 15 bucks off. Really creative. I'm good with that stuff. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. That's good. He's, a, he's very – you're a great writer. Thank uh, you. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, when are you back on the road? Uh, back on the road, January, I start going on the road again once a month. I think January I'm at the Relapse Theater in Atlanta mm-hmm. on the 26th and the 27th. Then I'm in D.C. I'm actually in D.C. and North Carolina the two days before that doing like underground one-nighters to work on the new hour. Where can they find out more about that? Uh, DanLamort.com. The tour dates has all of the uh, shows so far that are worked out for the road. Yes. And you can follow Dan Lamort on Twitter and Instagram it's at Dan Lamort. Yes, sir. L-A-M-O-R-T-E. Yes. Mm-hmm. And also, of course, DanLamort.com. And you can follow us at Let's Talk Sets. That's right. There at we go. Let's Talk Sets. That's yeah. our Twitter handle. We got retweeted yeah. by Gary Goldman. That was fun. Yeah. Oh, nice. Maria Bamford as well. Maria Bamford, Brian Regan, mm-hmm. Nick Swartzen. Yep. Uh, That's fun. Starting to get some some good. Yeah, yeah. Looking at it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you want to find out more about our guest, head to letstalkaboutsets.com and check out the show notes. We also have lots of episodes organized by theme and by the comedians that we discuss. You can get our episodes automatically every other week by subscribing to the podcast. Do it now on Apple Podcasts <laughs> or however else you get your fix. Special thanks to Mark Marin's Demons. Patton yeah. Oswalt's <laughs> caninopomorphized <laughs> depression. You and your words. Yeah, 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 yeah. And as always, a big, huge, warm, wet, loving hug and tongue kiss to Salt and Peppa for uh, 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 writing the original version of the song, which I've, of course, uh, modified beyond already. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, guys. Let's
sets. Let's talk about sets.